Welcome back to the program. Once upon a time, protest mattered. People got angry at the actions of government and actually acted upon it. While the protests of today, like Tea Party rallies and Occupy Wall Street, often call attention to a problem, arguably they're not intended to do anything about it. Back in the 60s and 70s, it was a very different story. Protests for civil rights and against the Vietnam War would reach a fever pitch. Buildings were seized, protests were both huge and personal. Draft cards were burned, and protesters didn't just spend a night in jail, but often went to prison for a long time. But what impact did it really have? Quite a bit. Papers released from both the Nixon and Johnson administration show that the level of protest did, in fact, impact policy. One of those caught up in the Times is a zealot-like character in the period, my guest, Bruce Dances. Long after his protest days, Bruce had a long career as a pop culture critic and editor, including 16 years as the arts and entertainment editor of the Sacramento Bee. It is my pleasure to welcome Bruce Dances here to talk about his book, Resistor, the story of protest in prison during the Vietnam War. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Jeff. Great to have you here. You grew up in a very political household. Talk a little bit about that first. Sure. I'm from the Bronx, New York. Uh, both of my parents had been uh, socialists during the 1930s. They were followers of Norman Thomas, uh, and they believed in democratic socialism in America. Uh, my dad was also a, uh, a pacifist uh, during, uh, during World War II, which is a very difficult position uh, to take, uh, especially for uh, a Jewish man at that period. So I, I, I was, um, when I sort of came of age in the 1950s, uh, I was in a house that believed strongly in civil rights and, uh, uh, you know, in free expression. And my parents encouraged me to take an, you know, an active role in the world. They were involved in their trade union movement. So I, I grew up in a household that sort of set me on a, an obvious path towards activism. And yet it could have gone arguably either way. If we look at a lot of other kids of the era, there was a lot of protest and rebellion Many kids that grew up in that kind of household sort of went to the other side and vice versa. Well, it's true. The funny thing is that although my parents were still quite progressive, uh, one of the big defining elements of their politics was their anti-communism. And um, not not that I was ever pro-communist, but that that they had a hard time seeing that uh, in, in Vietnam that the United States was maybe fighting on the wrong side or defending the wrong people. Uh, in South Vietnam, uh, my parents felt that uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, was someone they could never get behind, uh, and anyone who was fighting him was probably on the right side. So we actually argued about uh, Vietnam quite a bit in the early years. I think as the 60s went on and the war dragged on uh, with no end in sight uh, and with tremendous casualties mounting on, on every side, I think they sort of changed their position. And by the time I did go to prison, uh, without getting ahead of ourselves in the story, I mean, they were very supportive of me. But we, we certainly had our arguments when I was growing up. <laughs> but before prison, before Vietnam, before, even before college to a certain extent, you started to become active and, and get involved in the civil rights movement. Talk about that. That's right. Well, when I was, uh, I mean, I was, my parents were, were members of the NAACP, uh, the Urban League. I mean, they believed strongly in civil rights and integration or against racism. 
Um, when I was 15, I went with my aunt to the uh, March on Washington where Dr. King gave his uh, I Have a Dream speech. In high school, I got involved with uh, CORE, which was the Congress of Racial Equality, not doing a, not doing a lot, but taking part in actions, uh, going to some meetings, uh, involved in some fundraising for, for SNCC, which was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was the group of college students that was uh, working so hard in Mississippi and Alabama. So by the time I went to college in fall 1965, I was already very committed towards civil rights. But then the war started escalating earlier that year, and it was apparent to me quite early that uh, it, was a, it was a terrible, brutal war that I was going to oppose. Tell us a little bit about the arc of your awareness about the war and your opposition to it, the way it, it continued to escalate. Sure. Well, I remember distinctly in the summer of 1964, I was a counselor at a summer camp when the Gulf of Tonkin incident uh, arose. That was when the U.S. claimed that the North Vietnamese fired on, on some of our ships uh, uh, off the coast of Vietnam. Um, later, it turned out that that was a myth that it never really happened. But that was the pretext for President Johnson getting sort of blanket approval from Congress to uh, uh, increase both military aid and eventually send troops to Vietnam. Uh, I remember at that time, older people being really worried about it, and some couples are rushing to get married uh, quickly so that you know they would avoid the draft. Um, by February 65, a little bit later, that's when the U.S. started bombing North Vietnam and the U.S. started sending combat troops into, into South Vietnam. Um, by then, reports were coming back about horrific civilian casualties. We started learning more about the, the corruption of the governments of South Vietnam that we were fighting for, allegedly for, for freedom. You know, it was one military, military dictatorship after another. Uh, I started studying more about the, the history of Vietnam and found out, you know, that the North Vietnamese and the National Liberation Front came out of the anti-colonial resistance that the U.S. had supported during World War II when they were fighting against the Japanese. Uh, and they were maintaining that struggle just to get rid of, uh, whether it be the Japanese or the French colonials or then the Americans. So, um, you know, I, it was a very kind of learning a lot about it. Also at Cornell University, there were some scholars there who were among the country's experts on Southeast Asia, and they were very critical of the war. So it, was, it wasn't very difficult for me to you know, get involved in that within the very young and just born anti-war movement. What sense did you have at that point of what the protests could accomplish? You know, it was so rare at that time to have any protest against the war. I mean, I grew up in the 50s where there was a consensus that, the, you know, that whatever the United States was doing was right and whatever the Soviet bloc, which was one big undifferentiated mass, was wrong. I mean, it was only in the 60s we learned, well, actually there were divisions all over the world, that we weren't always supporting the good guys in places, you know, that we would support uh, any kind of dictatorship if it was pro-Western. Uh, or pro-U.S. In the same way that the, the what we call the, the enemy, they were divided. The Sino-Soviet split happened. You know, that was never foreseen. And the Vietnamese were always fiercely, the Vietnamese communists were always fiercely independent of both uh, Moscow and Beijing. So, I mean, the world was a lot more complex than what we'd led to, what I had thought, you know, when I was growing up. When you talk about this today, particularly when you talk to young people about it today, 
How do they respond to it without the benefit of the context of a very tumultuous and, as you say, complicated time? Well, I think, I think most people in America uh, who were from that period now regard Vietnam either as a tragedy or a mistake or a debacle, whatever you want to call it. There are very few people who think that our long and arduous involvement in that war was a good thing either for America or for Vietnam, for that matter. And I think that kind of received wisdom has gone down to younger people. Uh, but it's a very different world. I mean, um, um, people, I mean, the main difference is that young people aren't being drafted. I mean, that was so crucial uh, at the time, and kids have a hard time understanding that. And I have four kids, one, one, one boy. And I remember when he registered for the draft, it was just a very commonplace thing. There, there was no draft, but you had to register. You know, these days, um, back in the 60s, if you were coming of age, say, between 1964 and 1970, much of your world was concerned about what am I going to do about the draft? And that was for pro-war people, anti-war people, people who were apolitical. Uh, you had to make some decision about your life uh, and what you were going to do with the draft. Uh, as the war continued, more and more people did not want to go to Vietnam, whether they were pro-war or anti-war. Uh, and... Um, Again, the draft was central, and that, that was certainly became central to my life in this period. Talk about that, how, how it became central when you began to realize that this was something beyond just political protest. This was something that you personally had to come to grips with. Right. Um, well, I turned, um, eight, I was pretty young coming out of uh, high school, so I didn't turn 18 until the end of my uh, freshman year at college. And I knew I was against the war. I was very much against the war. I was already active in, in stuff on the Cornell University campus uh, back east. Uh, I, my big decision was, am I going to register for the draft, or am I going to make a statement saying, no, I'm not going to register, I'm not going to fight in Vietnam, I won't go. Uh, I wasn't really able to make that decision at that time, so I registered, but I did turn down a student deferment. I felt that the deferments were basically a kind of class privilege in America, where if you were either wealthy enough or well-connected enough or came from a background that enabled you to go to college, you were able to avoid army for four years or more. Um, whereas if you were poorer or didn't come from a family that had college, you were going to get drafted. Uh, and that just seemed unfair to me. So I did register, but I declined the student deferment. Within a few months after that, I felt that, no, this position really wasn't tenable for me, and I was going to declare my non-cooperation with selective service. So in, um, when I was around 18 and a half, I was a sophomore by then, I, uh, at a rally at, a, at Cornell, I decided to tear up my draft card and send it back to my draft board and say, um, I'm against the war, I won't fight in it, and I won't cooperate anymore with the selective service system. So that's what I did, and shortly after that, I was involved with other people in trying to organize others, you know, more people to resist the draft. And I became involved in organizing the first uh, mass draft card burning against the war. What sense did you have of what the consequences might be? Oh, I thought I was going to jail right away. Uh, it's funny when I got when I was researching my book, I got my uh, I got my FBI file, and it was uh, thousands of pages. I was amazed at how much time they spent on one guy, you know. And I wasn't 
the most prominent in the country. I wasn't Tom Hayden or somebody <laughs> like that. But, you know, it was, they were watch. when I tore my draft card, there were uh, six either agents or informers uh, watching me do that. Uh, there were memos going back to J. Edgar Hoover about this. It was in the press all over the place. I mean, I fully expected to be arrested as soon as I tore up my draft card and put it in the mail. But I wasn't there. It turns out I was finally, I was indicted a few months later. And um, it was because uh, we were planning this larger draft card burning, and they were trying to send the message that, okay, if you go ahead and do this, people are going to go to jail for it. Uh, but I knew from the moment I did it, I mean, it was a decision, am I willing to go to jail or to prison over these principles? And that, that was the key decision. Once I overcame my fear of that, I was able to tear up my draft card. And I said, okay, well, whatever happens, happens. I knew it was a maximum penalty of five years in prison, but I was ready to do that. I think what's really important for me was that uh, I was so influenced by the civil rights movement uh, as as a teenager. You know, watching uh, watching young people my own age go into prison in far harsher circumstances than I ever had. You know, and you know, um, enduring police brutality that was unbelievable. When I you know just to get their basic rights as a human being and a citizen, I mean, it just seemed like. You know, after watching so many other people do that, this seemed like the you know the least I could do. What did your parents think of what you were doing? <laughs> well, naturally, you know, my parents were very loving. Uh, um, you know, people they loved their son. As soon as I told them I was going to do this, they drove up the six hours from New York City to Ithaca, New York, where I was, to try to talk me out of it, or at least persuade me to wait a while and think about it. But uh, no, I was pretty stubborn in those days. <laughs> But, I mean, they supported me personally uh, when I dropped out of college to work against the war and for draft resistance. They did cut me off financially, and my parents basically said, well, if your movement needs you so much, they should support you. But emotionally, they were wonderful. Uh, you know, they were attended all of my trials. Uh, once I was in prison, even though I was around 11 or 12 hours away from New York City where they lived, they came down to visit me every month. Um, I, my, uh, my mother started going to anti-war demonstrations, carrying a sign, uh, free my draft resistor son from federal prison. I mean, they were, they were perfect. I mean, I can't, uh, I can't imagine any getting better support than I got from my parents. Talk a little bit. It made me think, you know, being a father myself, how could I possibly endure watching my own kid go through something like that? And I do regret, you know, now that they're long gone. Uh, you know, what I put them through. Talk a little bit about your sense of being, once you were in prison, being outside the movement, that while it was a form of protest in its own way, it really limited you in, in what you could do. Right. No, and that, that troubled me. I mean, my, my stance against the war and being a draft resistor was never just a personal act of conscience. It was that, but I also was trying to build a movement that would be large enough that we would actually impede the the ability of the U.S. to make war in Vietnam. I mean, now we had very strong and clear goals. And by the time I went to prison, even though the movement had gotten very big and the country had overwhelmingly turned against the war, we really were not affecting policy. Uh, you know, there were 500,000 American troops in Vietnam. I mean, the casualties were just horrendous on all sides. And I was feeling frustrated about that. I also felt that, you know, I was a pretty good organizer and I was now taking my, I was now being taken out of, uh, 
you know, circulation, so to speak. I missed a lot that went on. I missed the, most of 1969 and all of 1970. Uh, but, you know, I sustained myself. But I had friends who were political in prison. We had maybe only six or seven other draft physicians when I first got to prison, but there were other inmates who were against the war or who we had solidarity with. We had discussion groups. I wrote letters to friends a lot. I had a very active correspondence with people. You know, I tried to keep up with the issues. I educated myself, you know, to a much greater degree than I had after I had dropped out of college. I did a lot of reading. I had faculty friends send me whatever book I wanted. Uh, so I really did a... You know, I tried to make myself a better uh, a better activist by the time I got out of prison. You wound up in prison in Kentucky somewhere, or far away from yeah, New York. Yeah, I was in Ashland, Kentucky. Why there? Well, I, was just, I wish I knew that, Jeff. <laughs> you know, I got my Federal Bureau of Prisons file. Uh, I hope there would be some something about that, about how, why did they send me so far from New York City? I mean, there are federal prisons in Pennsylvania. There are prisons in Connecticut. Um I think it was mostly to get, I had become fairly notorious in those days in, in New York. Um, you know, I had a lot of contacts. I was active in Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, which was a, a lot, the largest new left group. Uh, I think they wanted to move me away from my friends and contacts. Uh, on the other hand, they did send me to a prison that was for guys under 30. I'd say most people there were under 25, um, tended to be not the, the most violent prison around. I think most of the people there were in for things like bank robbery, car theft, you know, mail fraud, drugs, some draft resistors, but not, you know, there weren't a lot of murderers. There weren't people in for excessively violent crimes. So there was some more. So it was the kind of prison that it, it certainly could have been a lot worse for me. Do you have a sense of those times being really unique? When you look back on it, it's not something that could ever be recreated, not something that happened before, and obviously not something that's happened since, that it was really indigenous to so many of the events that were taking place at the time. Well, that's true. I mean, the 60s was a tremendous time of turmoil. Not, I mean, but, I mean, the war was so central, and as I said, as I said the, the draft was so central to people's lives, but it was a time of, of civil rights and then the, the urban rebellions in, in the cities, a big backlash against that. Uh, the women's movement started to come, started to be reborn in the latter part of the 60s. The gay liberation movement, I mean, this, the environmental movement, I think what, the first Earth Day was around 1970. I mean, the, it was a period where a lot of people were challenging the established ideas and orthodoxies of the time, and it was a good time for... Uh, New, new thinking and new creativity. Um, but central to that, what's different from that and, say, the response to the wars in Iraq uh, is the draft. Uh, once you take every young man uh, out of peril in that sense, these people did not want to go to, to go to Vietnam, and that person's parents and the women who loved those, um, those people and were also affected by it, that changes things. I mean, if, if the... Nixon administration learned anything, and they, they were not stupid, uh, was that the draft was leading to so much uh, antagonism towards the government. And if you go to a draft lottery, which they did in 1971, and then to an all-volunteer army, which they did in 73, that's going to eliminate some of the, you know, some of the ferment or some of the causes of the protest. So uh, that's, I'd say that's the biggest change. 
Which really, in, in reflection, reminds us how much of the protest was personal, even beyond the political. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I think uh, every young man had to make a decision what he was going to do with his life to the most you know, to the extent he could. I knew uh, guys who, and out of fear of getting drafted, would enlist in the hopes of getting a better assignment you know, within the armed forces or getting some choice as to what branch of the armed forces they would go into. Um, it, we, we all had to make that decision. I mean, there were so many things that were wrong at the time, though. I remember in, they were using to, to get, they were having trouble getting enough people into this armed services. So they were, when they were, they were using class rank as a way to keep people, you know, whether it's keep their, their student deferments. And when that wasn't sufficient, I remember in 1966, they came up with this idea of having an exam. It was called the uh, Selective Service College Qualification Exam, in which you basically had to take a test. And if you did well, you'd keep your deferment and stay in college. But if you did lousy on the test, you could get drafted. So, I mean, it was so, to me, it was such a, a corruption of the educational system or, or the values that we're supposed to be learning in college and free thought and free expression and finding out about yourself. And here you take an exam and you flunk it and you go to Vietnam. It was, I mean, just terrible what was going on then. How did the whole experience as a protester and then as someone in federal prison, how did that shape the rest of your life, do you think? Well, I've been told it made me uh, less gregarious from friends who knew me from before. Uh, I'm still pretty talkative, and I'm a personable guy, but some people thought I wasn't quite the same when I got out. I was certainly very serious uh, as soon as I got out, even though I was on parole, and uh, the FBI did at one point try to get my parole revoked. Uh, you know, I got right back into the anti-war movement when I'm, I, I was paroled. I had to go back to college. That was one. It did force me to go back to college. I had dropped out, and the condition of my parole was that I go back, and I did do that. Uh, so, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I think not that much in personality, but I did have um, nightmares for 10 years after prison, I thought. And it was always the same nightmare. It was that my parole, had, that somehow I'd been set up by the FBI and my parole had been violated and I was back in Ashland as if I had never left. <laughs> and they went away for years until I started writing my book. And then I came back, which was pretty bizarre. You know, here I was in my uh, 60s writing this book, and I was back as a as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old in prison. Uh, that was strange. Uh, I sleep strange. I sleep very lightly, uh, probably from prison when you're always on your guard. Uh, you know, I sleep very straight with my arms uh, at my sides. I wake up at the slightest sound. Uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I've had a pretty happy and uh, fulfilling life, so... I think it's been okay. I think it probably in terms of jobs and some jobs, I've always had a policy of being upfront about my background, you know, that I, mm-hmm. I was in prison and what I was in prison for. So, uh, you know, uh, I, um, the newspapers I've worked on and the magazines have tended to either be moderate or progressive. I don't think I would be hired by a conservative newspaper, <laughs> you know, given that. Uh, but, but, you know, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. It's a little hard for me to assess that, you know. When, when you look at protest today, sort of a pale imitation of what went on at the time, how do you view them when you look at things like Occupy Wall Street? 
Well, no, I was very uh, inspired and moved by Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and I did go down and take part in some uh, events in Sacramento, you know, that were sponsored. I, w- I was very impressed with, uh, around the same time, there was a movement of students from community colleges, state colleges, and the state university system um, protesting about budget cuts and the amount of, of debt that students had to go and the fact that fees were continually raised. And I, I was amazed at the, both the... Uh, the uh, the diversity of the of the of the students protesting the size the enthusiasm so I mean I don't uh, you know I understand it's a different age and not as many people are as active but I think people are trying in their own ways and maybe different issues and they don't all coalesce in one big movement but I see a lot of stuff going on I am impressed by kids on college campuses their commitment towards uh, uh, towards the environment you know and uh, uh, fighting against uh, fracking, things like that, or fighting against budget cuts or the uh, inequality in America. You know, I do have high hopes for a new generation. I thought the Occupy people showed uh, tremendous courage uh, and resilience. Um, you know, I I had my differences. You know, I sort of believe strongly. One of the lessons I learned from the 60s is your organizations need to be democratic and, and have elections so you can have spokespeople, you know, uh, uh, who, who can best articulate your cause, um, and, you know, I have differences there. But on the other hand, I think the movements today are much more successful than we were in the 60s in terms of having equality between men and women in the ranks. Uh, I, I thought that was certainly one that, looking back, one of the failures of the movements I was part of in the 60s. Uh, so, I mean, I, I understand things are not the same as they were, and they probably can never be. But I, I, don't, I have by no means lost hope in this younger and younger generations. Bruce Dancis, his book is Resistor, a story of protest in prison during the Vietnam War. It's just out from Cornell University Press. Bruce, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 